as a uh, Protestant pastor, <clears throat> I, um, I guess I, I used to look upon Wittenberg as almost people look upon Atlantis for being entrenched in Protestantism, thinking of Wittenberg as the place where it quote unquote started. It really didn't start with Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church. It didn't really start that way, but it's a, it's a good um, tipping point, I guess. And um, I was fortunate, fortunate, blessed, privileged to lead a Reformation tour of my church, help lead uh, with one of my best friends in ministry. And we both kind of commented on that as our bus pulled into the village of Wittenberg. Um, he leaned over and said, I, I was beginning to wonder if this place really existed. And it does. It's a town of about 46,000 now, about, oh, 50 kilometers southeast of Berlin. Um, the Augustinian monastery that Luther was a monk in and then later owned, and the college that he began, and then, of course, All Saints Castle Church with the famous door that he nailed his 95 Theses, August 31st, 2017. And we had trouble seeing the church when we were there in 2012 because they were waiting. They were uh, uh, waiting and they were um, uh, remodeling and redoing the church because in 2017, of course, it would mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. You know, when we entered into our current millennium, every publication that I saw in 1999 every publication that tried to recount the top events of the previous millennium. The, top, the Reformation made the top three in every one that I ever read. Martin Luther was included in the top five of people who changed the world in every one of these perspectives, every one of these articles. But from the prophetic description of this supposed millennial earthquake. In other words, in the midst of the reign of the first beast of Revelation 13, the Reformation comes along and you'd, and you'd think that it would be this huge earthquake and it would change everything. Yet this is all that's said about it in the prophecy. I know that your last works are greater than your first. In other words, this whole millennial earthquake of the Reformation coming along and supposedly reforming, completely reforming the church, all Jesus can say about it is, you're doing a little better than you were before. Just a little. At the time, that's the impact that the Reformation had on the beast in the midst of its reign from 538 to 1798, where the beast from the sea is supposed to rule and, and punish the saints and win over the saints this entire time. And this is all Jesus has to say about the Reformation at the time. You're doing a little better than you were before. Just a little. That's it. That's it. So as we were looking at last week, the, the church at Thyatira is, is, is where we left off. We're going to look at the church of Sardis. And the reason that I bring up Thyatira and Sardis, Sardis is because the Reformation bridges both of these. So in other words, I, I think what I've pointed out before is that this beast that rises from the sea and God gives into him the hands of all the saints in the world and, they, and, they, and they're persecuted and they're, and, they're, and they're punished. That we looked back on it, we tend to look back on it and call it all one particular kind of church that the beast the, uh, only exhibited this one particular name. And I think I pointed out before what I wanted to get to is that the beast still reigns for another 300 years, and this time it's not just Catholic, but it's also what? Protestant. But we have a tendency to look at the first beast and call it all what? Call it all Catholic. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact 
If you're joining us for the first time, we began in Revelation 12 and 13, and we looked at the beast and, and, and to encapsulate it, to sum it up, uh, in the end time, living in the end time, we're struggling, the planet is struggling between worshiping two gods. The battle is not between the world and the church. The battle is between two powers that claim to be churches. One is the church of the living God, who is ruled by the lamb that was slain. Hopefully we're all members of that church today. Anybody not? If not, see me afterwards. We could take care of that real quick. And then the church that is ruled by the dragon who raised up these two beasts as his false trinity and begins to use a power that no one has ever, ever seen before brings all the power of, of, at the time, all the power, the civil power of the Roman Empire and all the ecclesiastical power of the Christian church and brings it together into a power that Daniel doesn't recognize and just terrifies him. And the difference between the two churches besides the two gods themselves is what and how these two gods ask for your worship. How do these two gods get you to worship them? The church that the lamb that was slain leaves it all up to who? Leaves it all up to us. In other words, we are completely free in Christ. The church of the beasts, of the two beasts and the dragon, fear, coercion, violence. The whole world wanders after the beast because the beast has the power to make people worship him. And that everyone, anyone who did not worship the beast ended up being what? Ended up being killed. And by the way, that line applies to the second beast, not the first one. So when the second beast shows up, he's actually going to be killing people. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that. But the reason that I wanted to take this, this side trip back to the seven churches was for us to be able to understand before we start talking about that second beast, before we begin to move a little closer to home for those of us in the United States of America, before we get to that second beast, we have to get there in a particular way. We have to get there in, in, in a way that I, that I would hope not leave us open to being seduced by this power. Because, by the way, how seductive is this power that the dragon brings forth in the beast? How seductive is it? The whole world wonders after the beast. How many? The whole world. And I point out, if you read in John 17, even John wondered about it. An angel had to rebuke him. What are you wondering at, John? Well, John just had all of his friends martyred in the past 50 years of his life. He's thinking, you know what? Maybe for just a little safety, maybe I'd have some friends alive if we began to use this power. And the angel says, don't worry. Don't worry. The lamb that was slain, he's got this. He's got this. So this is where we'll be today, this bridge. How effective was the Reformation over this 1260 year reign of the beast from the sea? How effective was he? To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works, you have a name of being alive, but you are, what? Dead. The Reformation didn't improve the church, the Reformation killed her. Isn't that what Jesus just said right there? Things were pretty bad in Thyatira. All the way up to 1563. Things were awfully bad when the beast was completely in charge. Awfully bad. But remember, he said, for, for those of you who, are, who haven't fallen uh, you know, and worshipped with Jezebel, for those of you, Jezebel can't repent, you can. And I won't lay any other burden on you. Remember, they still had an opportunity. They still had hope. Reformation comes along. And the church now literally is what? It's dead. She has a reputation, a history of being alive, but she's dead. 
She's spiritually lifeless. This is why Jesus comes as the one who holds the seven stars and holds the seven spirits. Remember prophetically what the number seven means. Seven is what? It's perfection. It's total. It's completely from God. So he, Jesus could actually say, the light, seven stars is the light, all the light that comes from God. And then also seven spirits, it is the Holy Spirit. It's God himself. Remember, Jesus comes to the churches uh, as what exactly they need. A dead church that's spiritually lifeless needs what? Needs the Holy Spirit. Not a spirit, not one-seventh of one, seven spirits. If it's a dead church, they're no longer spreading the light that they've been commissioned to do. So he comes with the seven what? The seven stars, the star, the light. The light of the world, Jesus said. Right? The spirit being the life force of the church, the star being the message or the gospel that they're supposed to be showing the world. The church in Sardis is missing both. Jesus will then further analyze and diagnose this church for us. The church has a good reputation, but it isn't one that's deserved. Highly thought of, but not worthy of it. Everything that I just read you about what uh, writers, and and these weren't theologians, these weren't uh, uh, religious or Christian publications written in 1999. This was Time Magazine, this was CNN, this was was, uh, US News and World Report. The world believed the Reformation to be an earthquake that changed the world. The 95 Theses were a treatise against the church uh, selling indulgences. In other words, if you had enough money and there wasn't anyone else in the village that you happened to live, you could buy your way into being a bishop. Luther was against this practice. You could buy masses. There's a story of one man who was rich enough, I'm not sure where he was, but he was rich enough to have a requiem mass said for him every day after the day he died. He paid for a requiem mass to be said for him every day in order to keep him out of purgatory. You could buy your way out of purgatory. You could buy your way out of hell. By the way, fear, which the beast uses effectively, fear of hell gets a lot done, doesn't it? It gets a heck of a lot done. If your works don't measure up, what do you have waiting for you? Your works don't measure up, and you feel guilty, and your guilt has nowhere to go but where? To hell. Which, by the way, how many years works measure up? Pretty effective tool, isn't it? I read once in a, in a novel I was reading that um, there was a nun in a, in a school who wanted to describe hell to one of her pupils because she was afraid for one of those people. And he said, take an iron ball the size of the planet Earth, have one robin, One, Robin, every 1,000 years, land on the ball and peck it. When the ball is worn down to nothing, that's the beginning of hell. Fear of hell is a pretty effective tool, isn't it? Fear, coercion, force, and eventually just out and out violence. We have to admit, that's what gets things done in this kingdom, doesn't it? That's what gets things done, which is why this power is so seductive. The reformers looked and they rediscovered the gospel. Luther sat down and he actually translated uh, the book of Romans. And when he translated the book of Romans, he found Jesus again. 
He'd had enough of being tortured in this monastery about not measuring up, about fearing hell, about fearing God's judgment upon him. He'd had enough of it. And when he read Romans and he translated it from Greek into his German, uh, I, I, I may be wrong on that, but he translated into his particular dialect, he was born again. That's the beginning of the Reformation. The beginning of the Reformation is when somebody decides that they're going to find Jesus again. And when anybody goes to find Jesus, he's going to be found. So when he understood that Jesus, reading in Romans 3, takes care of sin, takes care of guilt, and that the believer should have how much fear? None. Absolutely none. But does the Reformation follow through? Wake up, Jesus says to the church at Sardis. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to what? Which were about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Oh, uh, first of all, thank the Lord. <laughs> it, it, she's not completely dead. There's still a little bit that's alive that's about to what? About to die. So I guess the way to see this is the church may not be dead, but she's on life support. She's in a coma. But it's a church of half-hearted obedience. They begin things, they start things, but they rarely see them through. He said, I've not found deeds to be complete. I've not found deeds to be perfected or fulfilled. So remember what you've received and heard, keep it, and what? And repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Wake up. 970 years of a, 979 years of a holy empire, and I use holy in quotes, using force, fear, and coercion as the ultimate earthly weapon that even the reformers are asleep to, apparently. First 300 years of the Reformation, even they're asleep to that. In other words, they're good with it. The reformers have to look at, the religious room in, in, in Europe, in the old country, is so crowded, there's no room for anything to happen there anymore, none. And it's so crowded that, that the reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Zwingli, they all had to establish a legal right to exist outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther had to go to Augsburg, confess his newfound belief, and ask the community uh, or the civic authority of Augsburg, which, by the way, had, had, uh, was ruled by, by Roman Catholic rulers, and also had you know, enforcement to be able to enforce that, he had to go and actually look for a legal right to exist. So the reformers may have found Jesus in their theology, but they immediately began to look for their power in other places. And without knowing it, or maybe with knowing it, they opened themselves up. They opened themselves up to the same power that the first beast has now been using so effectively for 979 years. Each country chooses their faith, Roman Catholic or the various branches of Protestantism. Once again, the rights of the individual didn't exist. If you were different, you were persecuted either until you converted to something else or until you were dead. And we'll get to what happened. In other words, um, if something else didn't happen, if the wilderness didn't open up, if room wasn't given for a little bit more religious freedom and exploration, the Seventh-day Adventist church would have never existed. There is no way we could have established ourselves in, in the old country. As with the Anabaptists, we would have been persecuted until we were dead. We had to find another place. 
a place, hopefully, that may not require you to take a civic oath to be a member of a church. So remember what you perceived and heard. Obey it and repent. So remember, she's on life support, so she can still what? She can still be revived. She can still wake up. And he wants her to do it before what? Before he comes. Notice he says the thief reference is clear to what? What's he talking about when I come? And he refers to it as a thief. He's talking about his second coming, isn't he? Okay. He's talking about his second coming. The second coming will be like a what in the night? A thief. So that's, that's how he's describing the second coming. So if you think about it, he's back to this guilt and fear reference. He's talking to people. He's talking to people who've been using guilt and fear of God's judgment. And the second coming is the ultimate enactment of God's judgment. So they're what? They're fearing it. Should the second coming not be good news? Should you fear the second coming? Sardis is. Sardis is. Well, there are a few. There's still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are what? There's a sign of life. Even a dead church has a remnant. Remember, going back, always remember going back to the beginning of the vision. I wish I could just uh, have a picture of it. Every time you, you talk about a church, even coming all the way now to the, to the, sixth, uh, uh, to the fifth church, um, that Jesus is still walking amongst the lampstands. His presence is still there. The fact that she's breathing, she may be on life support, he's still there. He's still walking amongst her lampstands. And wherever Jesus walks in the church, there are at least still a few who walk with him. Those worthy of being God's children, they remain in Sardis. So if you conquer, you'll be clothed like what? Like them. Wearing what? Wearing white robes. And I'll not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So he comes as one who has the Holy Spirit, comes as one who still has light to give back to the church. And yet when they do, when they accept it, they will be now identified by what they're wearing. They'll be identified by their what? by their robe. So, Jesus' first counsels, first thing he counsels the church is to what? Wake up. The best thing that can happen to somebody in a coma is for them to what? Is to wake up. A dead church needs breath, seven breaths, needs his life support. Then he says, strengthen what remains. See, the difference from Thyatira is there he said he would place no further burden upon them. He told them to just hold on to what they had. Sardis is not even that adequate. They don't have anything to hold on to. They've let go of everything else. They've substituted his power for that power of that beast. And it's done what to their mission? Killed it. We open up to that power just a little bit and we actually kill our mission. We actually put the light out that we're supposed to be shining. There is no gospel in the gospel of the beast. Sardis is worse off than Thyatira. Then he says, remember what you've received and heard. I love that because that goes back all the way to Ephesus. And all the way back in Ephesus, the first church, this is where the trouble started when the church, fi- when the church decided that they were going to forget the love of God. You have forgotten the love that you had at first, Jesus said. But remember what he told him. Because that's the beautiful thing about the love of God. The love of God will not go away. So he said, you may have forgotten it, but guess what? It's right there. 
Just turn around and look at the shelf that you put it on. It's still there. And it's beautiful that he's telling Sardis that too. Get back to hold on what you let go. It's still where? It's still there. Because he is. You know, in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about the church at Laodicea, the church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. Yet the wonderful thing about Laodicea is that Jesus is there. He, he's on the outside of the church. The church has locked him out. But he's still knocking on the door, which means he's still where? He's still walking amongst Laodicea's lampstand. So he says, Repent. Aorist imperative, it means to start doing something that you're not doing. Just start. Repent from the indifference, from the apathy, from the ways that you have put yourself in the power of, of, of these civil authorities, the power of fear. Uh, come back, he says. Take decisive action. Turn it around. Does he have an incentive for him? Yes. His sudden appearance. So he uses the wake-sleep illustration that he used in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, in Luke 21. He said that one of the dangers his followers would have would be that they would fall asleep waiting for his coming. And that's the way that he's described this church now. This church has wandered in to the church of the beast. They've been enthralled by this power. They've been operating with this power. And the Reformation did nothing to turn them around. The Reformers are even asleep to it. Civil authority, military authority, political authority. And the way that he describes it, Jesus says, is that it's, they've fallen asleep to it. They're not aware of it anymore. They're perfectly good with how that power gets things done. Him coming was a blessing to the church at Smyrna. Remember the, the, the church that was being martyred? His coming was a blessing. To this church, it's a threat. Some commentators say that Sardis has ignored his teaching, forgotten to keep their minds fixed on, on his return. But what if they have it? What if they have had their minds fixed on their return, but they're afraid of it? You ever known anybody to be afraid of the second coming? In all of your time as a Christian, have you ever, has there ever been a time where you were afraid of the second coming? I hear it all the time. There's nothing, absolutely nothing more tragic than to be with somebody who was given uh, the health message gift of life and lived to be nearly 100 years old and I'm sitting with them on their hospice bed and they're worried. They're actually worried. They're still hoping that they will make it. And some of the reasons, and I kid you not, some of the reasons, I didn't watch uh, enough 3ABN as opposed to other types of TV. I didn't kneel when I prayed at times. What have we taught people? We don't have to keep our mind, take our minds off the second coming. What if their minds are fixed on the second coming, but they're afraid? The only people that shouldn't be afraid of the second coming are those that are assured that he's coming back for them in order to be able to either translate them or, or to resurrect them. And every one of us should not have to wait until the night before we die till we know. And every one of us should not have to wait until the day happens in order to know. You and I can know right now. Do you believe that Jesus came to die for your sins? You're ready for the second coming. Let him come right now. So what if Sardis again is focused on his return, but they're afraid? See, the reward is to walk with him in white. And that's why it's the reward. To walk with him in white. To not be soiled when? In the future? 
After you're resurrected and made perfect? No, when? When is he telling Sardis to put back the robe on? Now. Right now, he says. Don't be soiled now. Putting on the robe is our justification. It's that we accept Jesus and his full acceptance. We receive his complete legal acceptance in the actions that he has already taken for us, that he's doing for us right now, and that he will do for us forever. Do you believe that he's done that? You're wearing a robe of white. Rome, Luther was, was reading in Romans, and I don't know how it happened. I don't know if this was the first time that he had heard it, but he's in chapter three, because in, in, beginning in the middle of chapter one, uh, he begins to, uh, Paul lays out why nobody, nobody is right before God. He starts with the Gentiles, and as he's telling the Gentiles while they aren't, why they aren't uh, ready for God, because of their pagan ways, because of all of these things that they, that they do and don't do, Every Jewish listener is going, yeah, tell him, Paul, tell him. And then about the middle of chapter two, he turns the spotlight on them and he goes, but as for you, you who believe or claim to, and so everybody stands before God condemned. Everybody stands before God trying to come up with excuses of why they haven't got their act together. So in chapter 21, he says, but now, apart from the law, apart from whatever you think you are, you've been doing good or have not been doing good, the righteousness of God has been disclosed, it's been revealed, and it's attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. If you're a Gentile and you believe that Jesus has made you righteous, good. If you're a Jew and you believe that Jesus has made you righteous, good. There's no distinction between you anymore. Because all have sinned, how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, continue to fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified. Now here's where it veers off because English doesn't have a word for this. But if we could, justified actually is the verb of righteousness. In Greek, it's all one word. In Greek, righteousness, rightifying, righteous. And, and the verb form is being right with God. We don't have that in English. But if you were reading this in Greek, all he's saying is they are now righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He didn't just save us. He made us right with God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the son of God, the lamb that was slain, who leads our church, that is going up against the church of, of the dragon, do you believe that he's right with God? If you believe that he's right with God, then guess what? You're right with God. Paul just said it. Which means if you're right with God because of your faith and by faith alone, you have no reason to fear the second coming. None. This is how Sardis wakes up. Sardis remembers who they are in Christ. This is how they begin to wake up. This is how they begin to strengthen what came before. This is how they would begin to uh, let go of any other power that's trying to give them power or trying to give them victory. By trying to make you feel better that, that maybe you're not perfect, but you're so much righter than that Catholic over there, or you're so much righter than that Lutheran over there. See, for somebody who believes that they're right with God through Christ, they don't need that in their lives anymore. We don't need that in order to feel assured. We don't need that in order to no longer fear the second coming. We don't need to be righter than somebody else in order to be right. 
God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he makes right or justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So what becomes a boasting? Boasting's excluded. By what law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is made right by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. The robe, his righteousness, is a robe that we put on. And you put it on the day that you declared your faith in Christ. Those who haven't soiled them are the ones that remain faithful. Those who still completely trust in him for their forgiveness, for their salvation, and for their righteousness. Those who are acceptable to God in their present condition. Not someday when we get our act together. Not someday when he comes and finally takes care of this nature, which I believe he will, will be made perfect in the twinkling of an eye. I know it's going to happen, but in that moment, we won't be any righter than we are right now. Why? Not because of me. Not because of us. Not because we were Protestants. Not because we were Catholics. Not because we were Adventists. But because of Jesus Christ. The promise is that we're acceptable now. If we are acceptable now, we will be in the future. Or the promise is actually, if we will be acceptable in the future, we can be acceptable now. Those who remain having faith today, have the garment now, will have the garments in the future. And from now on, they are described by what they wear. Revelation 7 says, after this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, by the way, all religions included in there. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They're robed in what? That's how you and I are described in prophecy forever, is by what we're wearing. If we walk with Him today, we'll walk with Him then. And He will not, He promises, blot our name out of the book of life. There are those in Sardis who remain faithful because they know they're still in the book. And if you believe that, Jesus promised he will acknowledge you before his Father. Faithful have a personal advocate with God the Father. I had a friend who said once, all I know about the judgment, he said, all I know about the judgment is I'm gonna need a pretty good lawyer. Well, what if your lawyer was your judge and your jury and your sentence and every aspect of the trial that could possibly be rigged is rigged by his grace and his love? All we have to do is believe that. The resurrection can occur even in spiritually dead lives because he holds the seven breaths And he can breathe life into anybody that's dead. The reformers got back to Jesus through his word. But quickly the dynamic changes. And they wouldn't let go of that one weapon. That idea, that one substitute. That final substitute that the church decides to try after they forgot God's love for them. And that is the idea of a holy empire. Empire becomes the ultimate substitute for that. For the love of God. See, if we believe that God loves us, then we don't need an empire behind us, do we? We talked about this in prayer meeting. How much power, how much power does the world have over a martyr? None. Absolutely none. If I decide that my life means nothing except as if I'm serving Christ, then it doesn't matter what you do to me. And it doesn't matter whether or not it's a, an army or, or uh, a government or um, uh, some sort of civil authority. You and I believe in Christ. 
the church of the lamb that was slain is willing to lay down our lives for a friend. The power of the beast will have nothing over you. That's how we're free in Christ. But the medieval church, Protestant and Catholic, teaches that faith had to be associated with a nation. One nation, one faith. A belief that ecclesiastical uniformity is essential to political health and peace. Are you hearing things that are familiar? Because next week, we're going to have to head on to that other beast. Are you hearing things that are familiar? That some sort of ecclesiastical or church or a belief authority is essential to political health and peace of a nation? Are you hearing what he's saying? See, Protestantism didn't destroy this mentality. It fueled it. Concern for correct doctrine prevails over relationship with God. They found the relationship with God in Scripture, but they couldn't bring it home. They couldn't finish it up. They couldn't finish their deeds. They bring in new traditions, new creeds. They begin to fight with each other. Intolerance creeps back in. We picked on that, uh, that other church before. Look what happens here after the, the Reformation begins. By the way, the Reformation triggered something else to happen. Society of Jesus is approved by Paul III. The Inquisition is reinstated. The Counter-Reformation begins. Cramner and Latimer in England are martyred by Bloody Mary. Calvin has Michael Servetus executed. Now reformers are executing reformers. The Jesuits are expelled from England. St. Bartholomew Massacre in 1572, 50,000 Huguenots die in one night. By 1600, when the Reformation has had nearly five decades to take hold, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. In 1618, the Thirty Years' War begins. It is the most destruction in European history. It halved the population of Europe. Imagine Rwanda every year for 30 years. In 1649, Puritans, the Puritans, the ones who supposedly come looking to get beyond religious persecution, what did they do before they left? They used persecution themselves. They execute Charles I. Protestants had their own inquisitions. Luther raged against the Catholics and the Jews, vowing to exterminate those who would not follow him. Zwingli martyred the Anabaptists. Uh, the Anabaptists were, mar were martyred by both Protestant and Catholic churches. Both churches established and reestablished themselves as powerful institutions, and they will not let go of that one thing that they have to have, have to have some sort of civical national authority in order to exist. They don't see that if they were to just let go of that. And the story for, for us, as, as with Sardis, is that what happened to her can happen to every church that will, that will exist from now until the end of history. And every church's answer to that is what? Is Jesus. Got to find him again. Got to get back in touch with the power that the lamb that was slain gives us and not be looking for it somewhere else. Remember, he said, he began, he said, you're doing a little better than you were before. Would that apply to us? If our church was on that scale and Jesus was walking amongst us, would that apply to us? You're doing a little better than you were before. Remember the first beast? That, that first beast? And, and, and later on, because it's the one doctrine that they will hold on to, they got what they wanted by making people fear what? Making people fear hell. We came along and said what? There is no hell, right? 
That is what we still believe, right? Haven't mentioned it in a while, just wanted to see some nods. Okay. But how did we teach the investigative judgment? You were being investigated by Jesus. And if he didn't find it, you had your act together by the time your name came up in the judgment. Sorry. How is that different than hell? I have a professor who calls the investigative judgment, at least the way that we taught it, that we were raised on, he calls it the vegetarian version of everlasting burning hell. If everlasting burning hell is, is a real hot dog, investigative judgment's a big frank. And think about what it taught us. You have to be perfect before your name comes up in that judgment. And by the way, uh, there's a generation coming that there's only 144,000 that will ever make it. In other words, we became what? Afraid. Afraid of the judgment, afraid of the coming. So how much different were we than Sardis? So Jesus said, you did pretty good. You're doing a little better, a little. I got some problems. What were we afraid of? Afraid a sinner's gonna slip in? Afraid of teaching once saved, always saved? Afraid that if we talk about the power of the Spirit, we're going to become Pentecostal? Afraid, afraid, afraid. Afraid that we have to teach what is right because we will be held to greater responsibility? Are any of those reasons to be afraid if you're wearing your robe? So I'll just leave you where we started. Mike, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creature, a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you believe that you're right with God because of Christ, then the gospel is, those seven stars are, that we reconcile people to God the same way that we were reconciled. In other words, we introduce them to who? We introduce them to Christ. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No fear means we can examine our past. We can confess. We can look at our history. We can truly bring it out, call it what it is, confess in order to be able to move on. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because you're wearing a robe. You have not soiled it. We can look honestly at our past. We can look honestly at who we are. We could look honestly up, up, up even to, the, to, uh, to today, our, our motive for doing things, our motive for, for loving God, our motive for trying to witness to other people. He can cleanse us of all of our mistakes in making that. And that's why we're looking at this. Last time that I taught this, last time I went, it was last year around Christmas time. And I pointed out this. I said that, you know what? <clears throat> Um, the cross, the beast has shown us, the cross made a very effective sword, didn't it? Constantine convinced the world that the cross was a sword and he used that sword and over the next 1260 years, he used it very effectively, didn't he? I'll tell you what makes a lousy sword. You know what makes a horrible sword, a horrible weapon? Maybe he could turn the cross into one, but a manger makes a lousy one. And you know, you know, Who makes a lousy soldier? A baby. Isn't that our message at Christmas? Not a warrior, 
Not a sword, not King David slaying Goliath, but a baby in a manger. He is our everlasting God, our Prince of Peace. You know who makes a terrible soldier? You know who was a terrible soldier? Jesus. He made a lousy soldier, didn't he? So if you conquer, you'll be clothed like them in white robes, and I'll not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. If we have him, if we've conquered, if we're clothed in white, we're not blotted out. We have stumbled. We are stumbling, and we will continue to stumble. But before we move on to next week, I want to say, if we can't boast that we're better than the Catholics, at least we can stop doing that, right? At least we can stop and acknowledge that the, that the beast isn't all Roman Catholic, that it's a lot of Protestant mixed in there too, can't we? Can we at least start there? Okay. So if we can't be better than Catholics, if we can't be better than other Protestants who soiled their robes because, because we think that they uh, bought into too much doctrine, if we can't be better even as an SDA Protestant because we haven't done what we were called to do with the light that was shown us, agreed? If we can't be better, if we can't boast that we're more righteous than any other sinner, if we've been as guilty as anyone in being seduced by this power. And if you still don't believe that we have, well, guess what? Another beast is coming. How can we believe that being remnant is because we're righter than anybody else? We need to get rid of this spiritual arrogance. We need at least to get rid of the spiritual blindness to our own sinfulness. We need to get our righteousness in the same place that everybody else does. From him, our only source. Because if we don't, if we don't, guess what? Another beast is coming. And this one that comes out of the land, I think, is even more clever than the one that came before him. Keep your robe on. He died to give it to you. He lives that you keep it on. And if he lives before the Father, he right now is confessing our name to him if we have faith in him. We have nothing to fear. Nothing. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Thank you for staying on this ride.